0: If you have a Bible, I know we've been there before. But flip with me to Matthew 19, just for a moment. As you're turning there, a couple of sort of miscellaneous, seemingly randomish sort of things that I want to mention uh, before we dive in. This is, by the way, our last week on LGBTQ issues, and then, Lord willing, next week we will uh, get into. There's a lot of names for it. Critical theory. Uh, social justice, uh, wokeness, uh, you know, all, all those kinds of terms. So, we're going to spend a number of weeks on that and how our biggest concern is not just that there's a bad ideology out there, but that the ideology is coming into the church. And so, as the old saying goes, the, the ship is fine in the sea as long as the sea stays out of the boat, right? As soon as the water starts coming into the boat, then you've got problems. And we, we've seen that wokeness has definitely infiltrated some otherwise solid uh, Christians, uh, leaders, and uh, we want to try to explain from a biblical perspective how to think about those things, how to not buy into them. Uh, j- just to say one thing about that s- mini-series coming up here, which is still with the culture, it, it, I, you probably know people. I mean, I, I think we all know people who, who this has been the experience, someone who seemed to be biblically solid and on the same page starts buying into critical theory, critical race theory, wokeness, and they start drifting. And, and you can see over the course of six months or even three or four years, a massive difference over time in the thinking about almost everything. It, it starts to rewire how you think about all kinds of things. And I think it ends up misprioritizing issues, mislabeling issues, wrongly defining terms. And, and I don't want to sound dramatic. The most extreme form of wokeness is not Christianity. It, it, this is a belief system that if you truly buy into the premises and let it take you all the way, it will take you out of the gospel, I am convinced, at the end of the day. So it, it's one of those things where I'm not saying everyone who buys into any of it is not a Christian, It's not what I'm saying, but I think that this system does drive you ultimately away from a biblical gospel. Uh, before we pray…
1: It'll take you further than you ever wanted to go, right? That's right,
0: just like sin itself does. Um, before we pray, today to the very day, you may know, is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. So, January 22nd, 1973, 50 years ago today, Roe v. Wade was was passed into law. That's one of the reasons why we did this series against the culture, for the culture, because uh, 63 million unborn children have been legally killed in our country in the last 50 years because of Roe v. Wade. Uh, I had the privilege to speak about this in our chapel on Friday with just our high school students. The middle school did something else for the sake of just the topic, but they they also talked about it, but in a different setting. But I I got to talk to our high school students about it, and just, man, it it, it is one of those things where my my biggest concern today, and I was telling this to our students, my biggest concern is not so much that most of our students are not going to be pro-life. I think Virtually, most of, if not all, of our students are pro-life, at least on paper. But my concern is that we aren't consistently pro-life; that we aren't truly down to our depths understanding what's at stake here in comparison to other moral issues of our day. Nothing comes close in terms of the killing of the unborn—sixty-three million. What what other issue today comes even close in terms of the weight of that? Uh, And so, as we've said, it's like six holocausts that have been done legally in our culture. Just any, any, just brief off the top of your head, kind of thoughts about the, the, the anniversary of Roe and just anything that we've covered on, on the issue of abortion?
1: Actually, this was in regards to this other topic, but I was thinking, um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, my body is not my own, I may think it or claim it's my own and that's that's the charge i've heard from many pro-abortion people this my body i'll do with it what i want it's not your body now they may may not be believers and so they say well that's for somebody else but our body it says your body is a temple of the holy spirit that word temple that particular word is the holy of holies now that's the very place where the Tabernacle resided or the, the mercy seat resided and the Holy Spirit resided and God resided. And so your body is, we're told, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in the Holy of Holies. So you can say, well, I'll do what I want. Well, that's not really appropriate because that's not following what the Lord' decree is for your body.
2: There's a lot I could say. Um, I'll pick up on some of what you were saying, Fred. Um, I remember in seminary, Dr. Ware making a very poignant point on, um, you know, that he it, it, was a, it was a rhetorical point that he made, but it was really good. You know, he said, the theme song of hell is going to be drawn from Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Um, and we see what happens when we give people over to their way. Wanton death and destruction, chaos, corruption, just, you know, ruining everything that's good, true, and beautiful, and a complete disregard for the life of the most vulnerable among us. Um, and so I celebrate with every ounce of my being that Roe v. Wade was overturned, and I'm still excited about it. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I wish it hadn't taken 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and may God have mercy on our nation for tolerating that for so long. Yeah, the, the, the last
0: thing we'll say about this is that, that w- one of the things that disturbed me was a lot of evangelical leaders who are very prominent on places like Twitter, or they might write articles for Christianity Today or different major Christian organizations and magazines and such things as that. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, these people who are normally very outspoken on any kind of cultural issue, like were very loud about anything, you know, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, there was this eerie... Shocking silence mm-hmm. from an enormous number of evangelical leaders. There was no exuberant excitement on June 24th or June 25th or June 26th or for the following several weeks. It was just silence from a large number of, of evangelical leaders. And I, we'll get to this later, but I don't think that the woke movement is irrelevant to that silence. It's not, you're the, right. the woke movement, and we'll explain this in future weeks, I hope. The, the, underneath the surface, why are we publicly not as loud about our excitement about the overturning of Roe? The, the woke ideology, I do think, is primarily to blame for that. And we'll we'll try to Mm -hmm. explain the connections in coming weeks. Uh, Real quick, one thing we hadn't covered about marriage yet from the Bible's perspective is uh, the question I don't think we covered this. What about polygamy? So we've been saying for months now, marriage is between one man and one woman. And then I can just hear someone say, oh, well, you guys love the Bible. What about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar? What about uh, Jacob marrying Rachel and Leah and the two uh, the two servants of, of both of those women? He's, he's married to four. The, the 12 tribes of Israel come from four mothers but one father who are all alive at the same time. Or David had a plurality of wives and Solomon had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. What are you talking about? The Bible supports one man and one woman for life. And you could say a whole lot more about this just very briefly. Let's look at Jesus and then I'll say something about the Old Testament. I know this is a question about divorce but his his... Jesus' answer is about marriage. Look at verse 3 of Matthew 19. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He, Jesus, answered, have you not read, so He's quoting Genesis, that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man, singular, shall leave his father and mother, there's just one father, one mother, and hold fast to his wife, singular, and the two… Not the three or four, the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." Jesus' answer about marriage questions and sexuality questions is, what was the prototype that God gave us in Eden? It was Adam and a single woman. It was Adam and Eve. It wasn't Adam, Eve, and several other women. It was not polygamy in the Garden of Eden. That would be a totally different Bible if that was the case. It, it is Adam, one man, with Eve, one woman. And the first time you see polygamy, I believe, is Genesis 4, and it's a descendant of Cain, the murderer, and his name is Lamech, I believe, and he, he acquires multiple wives, and he boasts about uh, killing a man, avenging him for, is a man struck me, so I killed him, and he's boasting to his two wives. So the first polygamist in the Bible is a murderer. And then you go on from there, every time you see polygamy in the Bible, and I don't don't think there's an exception to this, every single time there's a narrative in the Old Testament that involves polygamy, it causes major problems. Hagar and Sarah hate each other, right? Right? Uh, think of 1 Sam, Samuel begins with, uh, with uh, Hannah, right, mm-hmm. having Samuel, and then her, the, the, other, the, the man is married to Hannah and another woman. And guess what? There's major tension because one woman can have children and Hannah can't, and the, the other woman feels superior, and there's major drama in that family relationship, and on and on. Every time polygamy shows up, it causes problems, and the most dramatic example is Solomon. Uh, let me get 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4, Solomon married many wives and his heart was led astray from a devotion to the Lord. The downfall of the kingdom in the Old Testament happened. Why? Because of polygamy and idolatry tied together with Solomon's many wives. So, the Bible has nothing good to say about polygamy. Uh, The fact that it happened is not an endorsement of it happening. You know what? Abraham also lies about his wife a couple of times. The Bible doesn't support that. Uh, There's all kinds of… Noah gets drunk. These things are not supported. That You see the sins of the fathers, and those sins are are, are there for all to see, but God and Jesus clearly
2: are, are saying, no, it's one man and one woman. Well, it's also, it's a call for wisdom uh, when we see like the pattern in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Um, because obviously, you know, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs says that. And so we come to a text like that where God is creating humanity and establishing the primary relationship, what it is, what it's going to look like, and all of that. And the call for wisdom is, we need to see that and say, that's what we need to stick to. When so if anything goes away from the design and the pattern that God sets up, that's got to mean trouble. It's just got to because it's not what God designed. It's not the pattern God, God gave us. And so, yes, the, it, it clearly said, I think in Deuteronomy, a king shall not multiply wives, mm-hmm. but it ne- didn't necessarily say that for every person, if I'm remembering right. But just because it didn't specifically say you know, you shall not have more than one wife. We look at the pattern God set up in Genesis, a man, singular, like you said, will, you know, hold fast to his wife, singular. Anything other than that is outside of what God created for us and it is outside of God's good intention. So anything other than that can't be good. It just can't be because it's not what God set up. And so when we read scripture sometimes, we need to to pray for wisdom to see those things. If God sets up a pattern, um, a very clear pattern or design uh, for us, and He says it's good because that's what He said, anything other than that is not good, and it only leads to trouble, and it only leads to heartache and problems, like you said. No, that's good. I think we forgot to pray. So l- let me pray for us,
0: and then we will, we will uh, dive into uh, today's topic. Heavenly Father, thank You for a chance to talk about the culture from a biblical worldview and a biblical perspective. Uh, I do pray today as we talk a little bit more about uh, desire that is sinful, whether it be homosexual desire or heterosexual lust or whatever it may be, uh, as we talk about sinful desire, that You would help us all to be humble, that we would desire to fight whatever struggle it is that we have, and that You would show us that uh, there are some really uh, bad ways of thinking about these things that are being promulgated uh, in, in, in our country right now. Uh, And we need to be aware of them and have discernment and discretion regarding them so that we don't fall into the same error and that we ourselves are able to fight uh, by Your grace and for Your glory uh, against our sins and and ultimately that we would love You above all. So I pray You'd be honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, turn with me real quick to Ephesians 5, Ephesians chapter 5. We're about to talk about something called revoice in just a moment. I'm going to let Greg uh, share a little bit about what that is. Before we get to revoice, which you may have heard of, let's read the first few verses of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity... Or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now here's the warning. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let me just state the obvious here. Everybody in this room struggles with idolatry. There's no one in this room who does not struggle with idolatry. We we, we prize things more than Jesus, and we struggle to not do that. But everybody's going to have moments of idolatry as a Christian. So when it says here, no one who is sexually immoral, in verse 5, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has an inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Again, it's not talking about moral perfection, it's talking about what marks and characterizes our lives, what, what, what marks and characterizes our lives as a habit. And we need to be at war against all forms of sin in our life, going all the way down to the issue of sinful desire. Not just sinful action, which of course we must fight, but even fight sinful desire from the very beginning. So, Greg, with that in mind, can you introduce us? Uh, we, we mentioned it a few weeks ago, but mm-hmm. uh, tell us about Revoice and uh, Plan. What, what's the other one called? Side B. Side B.
2: <clears throat> yeah. Um, okay. I'll do my best to keep this concise because this is a this is a whole can of worms we could spend a lot of time on. Um, you read some of the articles, oh, yeah, like you to start totally. listening to some of the interviews that people do on this, and like it's, it's a whole other world in and of itself. Um, obviously... You know, we we talked about the Nashville Statement in here, which is a very clear statement, like on biblical sexuality, what the Bible teaches. It lays out really good parameters in terms of, you know, what where the Bible takes us, where it does not take us. You know, how we need to think, terminology that we should use, terminology that we should not use, and all that. So when the Nashville Statement came out, um, a lot of you know well-known folks signed it and all this, but there was a a lot of criticism that came now. Obviously, folks in the world, you know, who aren't in the, the Christian context, they're going to have problems with the Nashville Statement because it's basically saying pretty much all that our society is engaged sexually and like in media and everything is, is sinful and wrong. But what was kind of surprising was the number of criticisms that came from those within conservative evangelical um, contexts. Um, specifically... The Nashville Statement, I think, if I'm remembering right, says very clearly, there's one article, I think it's Article 7, talks about our identity and and things like that. And, you know, we have to be defined by Scripture. We can't allow any kind of sinful descriptor to be added to who we are as Christian. Like we are, to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. It's to be a person who's daily repenting of their sin, um, you know, seeking to live the way God would have. And the folks who had a hard time with this um, eventually started a a conference um, and kind of a movement called Revoice. Um, Nate Collins is a guy, I actually knew him when I was at seminary. We worked at Cinnabon together for a number of years. Um,
0: (laughs) That's a strange beginning. It is a strange beginning,
2: but so and you know as I got to know him I mean, we, we, there was a lot of guys from the seminary and boys' college worked at, at Cinnabon. It was a unique little thing for a while. So we had a lot of conversations. And I, Nate liked to push the boundaries. Um, How many years ago was that? This was in 2003 to 2007. So I just dated myself. Um, I'm still younger than some of y'all, so I'm okay. Um, but, and so I knew this as I got to know Nate, that um, he used to be, um, at some point, was, was gay had, you know, renounced that as a lifestyle, but still kind of, you know, struggled with some of those desires, but, you know, he got married to, to his wife and all that, um, and, you know, I, I knew he pushed the boundaries on some things, um, and so when Revoice came out, and he was very critical, because he actually said, in others, that the statement in the Nashville statement that they had problems with was spiritually abusive, because of how it was talking about Christian identity, um, it's not just we disagree, this is spiritually abusive, And so he helped found this this conference called Revoice, started in 2018, Um, and basically it was to give a space to professing Christians who held to as they and they they won't ever say biblical sexuality. It's historic Christian teaching on sexuality. They won't say biblical sexuality. They've never said that. Um, But the conference was to give space to people who struggled with same sex attraction. Um, You know, a space to come together. And, and, and hear from one another, encourage one another because they've been so mistreated in churches um, and, and stuff like that. And obviously there was a lot of pushback, um, rightfully so, because they wanted to say that you can use the term gay, Christian, and that's okay. Um, you can say that you're a Christian and you're also gay. Now, they would say, we, we promote celibacy. Don't engage in same-sex relationships, but you can still be gay and be a Christian, um, I remember it was a it was a social media post from a while back where Nate caught and I remember I showed I showed Beck this and we're, she was like wait a minute what um, he was at like some some event like a sporting event with a friend and he's married with kids and he says just a couple of gay Christian men out having a great time and it's like something about that is so fundamentally out of step with the Bible it's out of step with how the New Testament talks. And so what, it, what it's tapping into, though, um, in, in the homosexual community there, in terms of Christianity, there's two sides. There's side A and side B. Side A is fully affirming, says, yes, you can be fully Christian and you can have a full homosexual lifestyle and God's pleased with that. Side B says, no, you, you can't engage in the actual relationship, but you have your orientation, your attractions, and that's not necessarily wrong. That's not necessarily sinful. Does it come from the fall? Is it because of the fall? Yes, but, and they've kind of backed the language up on this more and more to where they're like, well, it's actually okay to call yourself gay or transgender or bi, whatever, and still be Christian and call that same-sex attraction, they will say, is not something you need to repent of.
0: The orientation, the orientation,
2: (laughs) the desire for someone of your same biological sex is not something you need to repent of. Um, and so Revoice has been going on and what's interesting when it first came out, like you could, you could access all the stuff, uh, all their messages and you could listen for yourself. Now you have to pay a $6 a month subscription fee in order to access that. It's been, I I looked all over YouTube and maybe I just didn't find it. I searched on the internet. You can't find these talks anymore. They took them off anymore. They took them off. I think because they want to present a, a certain picture to the public of who they are. Um, Because they do like, and I thank God for this, they they do say it is sin to engage in homosexual activity, but they still allow for, um, you know, using the moniker a gay Christian or whatever. Um, Another thing they're doing is um, talking about like celibate partnerships, meaning, well, we're not going to engage in homosexual activity We can be roommates, but we can be, no, and it's more than roommates. Right. They actually have some sort of covenant ceremony whereby two men or two women willing enter into a covenant together to live together, even though they're not going to be sexually active, but because of, well, they're same sex attracted and they're bent that way. They don't have desire for the opposite sex. That kind of relationship is okay. It's sanctifiable in God's eyes. There's treasure from the gay and queer community that we're going to take into heaven with us. This is side B. Again, Praise the Lord, they say, the actual act of homosexuality is sin, but they sanctify the desire for it. And they say, well, you can have non-erotic, non-romantic, same-sex attraction. You can find beauty and desire and cuddling and all kinds of stuff like that is, is appropriate for people of the same sex, even if they're not married. But just let me jump in there. So uh, some of you probably know more about this than others, and you maybe have looked into this
0: over the last few years, as this has become more of a big deal but two, two, two obvious things. Number one, this is clearly not the right way to talk about these issues or to deal with those issues. I mean, I think we're on the same page. That's just not how we deal with those things. But the second thing, which is no less troubling, is do you really think it's going to stay where it is No. in five years? I mean, already now, the, the, what we read, at least mm-hmm. the articles that we read, was now people with their name tags. Is it the most recent yeah, the brief most voice? Recent Tell mm-hmm. what was happening
2: there. So initially, it was just for gay and lesbian you know, finding a community that they can identify with. Now it was transgender. Um, they were allowed to wear their pronouns, whatever their pronouns were right. at this conference. And this this is what I was saying, like the secretive nature of this, which is very troubling, is they have their, their official statements online that you can read. And you say, you know, I might not word it exactly that way, but you know, it sounds good. But they don't tell you all that goes on at their conferences. Um, they don't tell you the, the different talks that people have, that if you were to hear it, it would make you pull your hair out. If you have hair, um, it would make you pull your... I, I don't have it. Some of us in here are like that. Um, but and you'd be like, there's no way that this is okay. There's no way it's okay. But they don't keep that on the public because they don't want to get the stigma that comes with all the stuff that they do that they don't let people know about.
1: You know, Corinthians tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I mean... That's what the Bible says. Now, that doesn't mean you, that you snap your finger and it's going to happen, you know, there's sanctification involved mm-hmm. and that type of thing. But how does that lay down with, the, with this revoice?
2: Yeah, and it doesn't. And I think that's the saddest part is, I mean, we know Romans 8, 12 and 13, you know, um, let, me, let me read it. I'm not going to remember it when I want to. Um, Oh, yeah, he says, you know, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Other places it talks about the desires of the flesh. We read that in Ephesians. You can read it in other places. Um, And so we are to be putting to death, mortifying our sin on a daily basis. Um, whatever that sin is, not all of us are going to have the same struggles. Not all of us are going to be inclined in the same way, but whatever our temptations to sin are, whatever our inclinations are, we need to be waging war on those on a daily basis. We have, um, there's, there's no time off. There's no vacation. Um, we're constantly in a wartime mindset when it comes to our sin. Um, and so for a movement to say that a sinful desire needs to be sanctified and not put to death is already horribly out of step with the New Testament. It is, it is on a trajectory, as you were saying, the same thing like with the wokeness, this, it's, it's, it is a slippery slope. You start opening up the possibility of this. And once you open up the possibility of unsanct- of sanctifying something that the Bible calls sin, then it's only a matter of time before the next step comes and you start saying that the very actions you said were sinful now aren't sinful. Um, yeah. So something I heard from, uh, I think it was Al Mohler
0: a long time ago. If you remember when Al Mohler got to Southern Seminary back in the 90s, he was young. He was in his early 30s, youngest president there in the history. And when he got there, it, it, was, it had gone extraordinarily liberal. There were professors who didn't believe it, I guess, in like the virgin birth or didn't take certain things literally mm-hmm. in the Bible. Professors. And then th- there were a, a lot of... Uh, Egalitarians in the in the seminary, so there were a lot of women going into the… being trained to become pastors at Southern. When Al Mohler got there, you can still watch the video on YouTube. He's like 33 years old; he looks like a child. And Al Mohler standing up in front of the whole room in their in their uh, chapel room, and he is getting raked over the coals for his conservative views. So people are just coming at him with venom. I mean, have you seen some Mm, of that? People just come at, and he's very calm, and he's trying to give answers from the you know First Timothy two says this, and the Bible says this and this, and people are just going at him like he. God has called me to the ministry. Who do you think you are? That kind of stuff. And so uh, he ended up having to fire a lot of professors because they were no longer holding to their statement of faith. And then they were replaced by a lot of it. They had new professors come in and get trained up. He got like Tom Schreiner to come in, and a whole bunch of people came in, and they built up the faculty. And they've had more recent issues in recent years with, with critical theory things. Hopefully that's going to be worked out. But they, they, they reestablished a conservative uh, professorship and then mm-hmm. bringing in conservative students. Now, here's what Al Muller said, learning from that thing in the 90s, And I'll never forget this. This is a great statement about how institutions work. He said, institutions inherently and seemingly always drift left. They swerve right. They don't drift right. Nobody drifts slowly into inerrancy. You don't drift slowly into complementarianism. You don't drift slowly into biblical views of sexuality. You don't drift slowly away from the homosexual agenda. That's not how it happens. How does it happen? Every institution inherently drifts left. Well, maybe Peter didn't really write Second Peter. You know, there's a debate, and I don't know that Peter really wrote that. Maybe maybe Paul didn't really write Second Timothy because some First Timothy too. That one's offensive. I don't know that Paul really wrote those letters. And before long, what's happening? You're drifting left. Before you know it, you're, you don't believe in the virgin birth, and suddenly the resurrection of Jesus is a spiritual metaphor. Like what in the world? Like you know, R.C. Sproul, uh, when he grow. If you've read his biography, or yeah, his biography by Stephen Nichols at the beginning, uh, R.C. grew up in a liberal uh, church what denomination, but he's a liberal church that he grew up in, and when R.C. was converted in his freshman year of college, he was about 18, he went back to his childhood pastor and said, I've got amazing news. I just came to know the Lord. Like, the Lord just saved me. Like, it's incredible. Like, His death, burial, and resurrection have saved me. And I won't even say it because the guy cussed at him. His, his, his pastor said… If you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you're a D fool, a D A M N fool. Uh, This is my pastor talking. Well, what is it? That's liberalism in its fullest form, not even believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus from the pastor. What are you even doing up there? What are you preaching about? He said, Well, the, the resurrection's a metaphor we can all understand. Life from the dead. It's a metaphor, it's very powerful. But if you don't believe Jesus actually rose, then what are you doing every Sunday? So the point is this. Institutions drift left. Denominations drift left. The whole SBC denomination in the 70s drifted left. It moved into a denying the Bible's God's Word, and it had to come back to conservatism. How did it happen? Well, it happened through an elaborate deal, but it happened very quickly through a conservative push in the right direction. So you either drift left or you swerve very dramatically to the right. But there is no such thing as drifting to the right. So revoice is clearly drifting left. Mm-hmm. and it's not going to stop. It's going to continue. I guarantee you in three to five years, they're going to be saying even more crazy stuff than they are right now. The fact that they had his, her, uh, you know, they had to write their pronouns on their name tag at the most recent revoice tells you all you need to know. It does not surprise me that five years in or whatever it is, that they're already putting the, 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 the pronouns on the, the, their name tags. They
1: had one session called, and this is Moeller spoke out against, this, Redeeming Queer Culture and Adventure. They I, I didn't define what that was, but Muller said that's shocking.
2: Yeah, you don't, re, you don't redeem sin. You redeem sinners, but you forsake sin. Right. And again, here you see a pattern of, well, this isn't sinful. These desires aren't inherently sinful. Therefore, they don't need to be put to death. They are part of who I am, um, and therefore I can sanctify them and they can be holy. Um, but the other thing, too, um, what was I going to say on this? They also, and this is ultimately where it goes, when, you, when false teaching realizes that it can't, that it's being opposed, um, it wants to separate um, a lot of times. And so at the most recent Revoice, if I if understand it rightly, they were actually calling for gay Christians to leave their churches and form new gay Christian communities where they can be accepted and affirmed and loved the way they think they should be. That is so divisive um, to the church. It's not saying stay, stay in a church, you know, it's saying leave, leave, because your church doesn't affirm your gay identity. You need to leave that church and you need to go form your own communities. Um, and I mean, that's just terrible. But I mean, it also is revealing, where, like we said, where does it eventually go? It eventually becomes clear that it's leaving true doctrine, clear, healthy, sound doctrine, and it's going to something else. And so if the church that holds all the right doctrine, um, preaches the truth, keeps the gospel central, but they say, I'm not going to affirm your homosexual identity as a Christian. And you say, well, th- well, that's just a line too far. Then their whole moral compass is, com- is already broken. Um, and they, they, they don't know where they're going. They can't see the truth. They're already becoming blind to, uh, to the gospel. They're becoming blind to what God says about us in scripture. Um, now, you know, we, we talk about this, guys, and I want to make sure, Mark mentioned this earlier, we've got to make sure we're clear on this. Um, homosexuality gets a lot of attention because it's the most public thing right now, these issues are. And so the church, we, we have to speak out against it publicly. We have to, to acknowledge it. Like, what was it, Luther said, it, you know, if you claim to fight for Jesus or something, but the one place where the battle's the hottest, you don't, you don't fight there, you're basically giving up. Um, we, we can't ignore issues like this. Um, but we also need to remember, you know, we all struggle with sin. Like, we all struggle with sin in various ways. Um, I, I do believe some people are going to be more inclined to homosexual sin than, than others. Some are going to be inclined to be more angry, some greedy, some this. We all have different desires that are wrong, that we should be fighting and putting to death, whatever they are. And so I do think one thing the church can take out of this is, because the nature of the homosexual thing, if, if we meet somebody who says they struggle with that, our first response does not need to be recoiling in disgust. Um, I know that's hard because the act itself is disgusting in God's eyes. It is, and it sh- we, we should have nothing in us that, that is okay with that. But we have to remember, um, if someone is saying, look, this is what I struggle with, I, I know something's not right about it, we need to be willing to come around them Love them, be patient with them. Open up Scripture to, you know help them understand what the Bible says, and walk with them in a process of learning to put sin to death the same way we do with our sins. That's not exactly like theirs, um, and so we need to make sure that we don't fail to treat, or that we need to make sure. Let me make sure I say this right. We want to make sure that we're treating people who struggle with same sex attraction as human beings. And not less than human. Um, because of the nature of the sin, we, I think, rightly have a, a, a response that says, that's wrong. And we should have that response. But we have to remember, um, there's still people. And we need to love them as people and call them out of their sin, patiently, lovingly, graciously, but firmly, like we would anyone else. And
0: that, that's why the thing like Revoice is not helping those people mm-hmm. really, truly get rid of that, or really fight it down to the very root. It's yeah. trying to leave the root still intact, even though it gets yes. rid of the tree that's supposed to grow out of it. Which That doesn't work, but that's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So we're against revoice because it doesn't help people struggling with same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does not really get to the very bottom of the issue. No, yeah, if someone is sitting in private and says, I need to tell you something, I struggle with same-sex attraction, they're telling you this in private, and they say, like, it's a battle for me, I'm embarrassed by it, I don't like it, I'm fighting it, I don't in any way want to give into it, not a single bit of you should freak out or recoil or go, what in the world? Like, no, you, you just, it, it's like, okay, well, join the club, but we're all struggling sinners in one way or another. Like we, We've all got sin that we're fighting. So it, the difference is, is someone, like we said before, is someone with God and fighting their sin, or is someone with their sin fighting God? And if someone's with their sin fighting God, the approach is going to sound a little different in terms of what I'm trying to get at. But if someone says, listen, I'm broken over my sin, whether it be heterosexual lust or homosexual lust, I have inappropriate desire, I'm fighting, well then... Okay, like, join the club of, like, humanity. Like, join the club of believers who are fighting their sin. And so, th- there's, there's not an iota in us that's going to react in any kind of appalled way if someone says, hey, I'm struggling with this or that uh, version of whatever kind of sin it is. No, we're like, okay, like, that, that's where we're all at. We're all fighting sin till the day we die. Yeah. So, in that sense, we're all in the same boat, essentially speaking. We're all, we're all fighting our sin, and we all need, by the Spirit, to put the deeds of the flesh to death.
1: Well, I like that uh, you mentioned Romans 8.13. I mean, J.J. Owen, of course, wrote much on the mortification of the flesh, because mm-hmm. he tr- tried to impart how to fight it, how to... Because uh, if we've got to put... you got to mortify your flesh, in other words. Mm-hmm. Put to death the deeds of the body, or, or, and you will live. Otherwise, you will die. I mean, pretty straightforward.
0: What, what, just let's get pra- really practical here for, for a few minutes. Uh, in the last minutes that we have left, if someone is fighting sin of any… Really, it could be any kind of sin at all, but a sin at the level of desire, which is where all, it all starts, down at the root. If someone, if someone knows that there's a recurring sin temptation in their life with X, whatever ish, the issue is, I, I know this is a pattern in my life. It keeps coming back. It doesn't… Like some sins, you become a Christian for some people, and this temptation doesn't even seem to come back. Like, I I know a guy who was a lifelong alcoholic, just drank, 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 every day, was drunk all day long. Nine o'clock in the morning, he's drinking some kind of hard liquor, and it's it's a sales job. I'm sure he was making lots of sales that day. And he said he would wake up in the middle of the night, he had to drink hard alcohol like two in the morning just to keep everything balanced out with his body. He becomes a Christian. His conversion is so radical, he said um, he's only struggled to drink one time since his conversion like 16, 17 years ago. That's that happens sometimes. So someone is just devoted to a sin, they become a Christian, and they don't even have the slightest trouble with it for the rest mm-hmm. of their life. That's, that's great. But that's not true for a lot of us, right? So you, you become a Christian, and there's still the battle that rages on. So some, some practical tips to deal with recurring temptations to sin that believers struggle with.
1: Well, you meant, uh, mentioned uh, Romans uh, 8. Uh, you know, it, it says in 5, for those who live according to the flesh— Uh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Uh, And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And it's pretty straightforward to me. When I finally understood this, it was pretty practical. Uh, Anything that uh, interfered with what my mind, uh, you know, the spiritual aspects of my focus was an enemy, and I had to fight it. I mean, whether uh, it's praying. I mean, I had one guy I was mentoring back in your era, that was, you know, he was uh, struggling with lust, and he'd get up at three o'clock in the morning and go run in order to fight his sin tendencies there. I mean, physically go run. Uh, I'm not saying you go run. I mean, you, 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 need to sit, you need to pray, you need to be in the Word, uh, but you need to work on what you're thinking about.
0: And if there if there's a place where whatever your sin struggle is, if going to this place or being in this place, it tends to make the temptation a lot worse. Or, well, see, that's then, why then I flee. think this reports things so
1: bad. You're, right, you're, right. you're coming together, celebrating your gayness or whatever.
2: The orientation. Yes. Um, something else is you know going on the mindset of Romans eight five. Think of like uh, Romans uh, six, where it says, "Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus." Um, A lot of this has to do with the mindset that we adopt um, in terms of who we are and what we should be doing. Um, A related one is in Galatians 6, uh, verses 7 and 8, where he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And the point is, we need to have the mindset that says, I'm going to sow to the things of God. I'm going to sow to the things that are good. I'm going to sow to the things that God reveals in scripture that are important and necessary. And the sinful desires of my flesh, I'm not going to sow to those. Like I'm not going to, to water them. I'm not going to fuel them. I'm not going to feed them because you you feed, uh, you feed it, it's going to grow. It's going to get strength. And if, if I'm sowing to my sinful nature and sinful desires, then what's going to happen? I'm going to reap sinful stuff in my life. And the, the, the habits that, that I want to break, if I keep sowing to them, keep fueling them, they're only going to stay strong. I'm only going to keep losing. Um, and I'm never going to gain the ground that I would hope to gain. And so if we want to, uh, a practical thing is when sinful desires come in, like in our minds, we just say, okay, I'm not going to feed this by nurturing it. I'm not going to linger on it. I'm going to fight to think on Christ. I'm going to fight to think on the cross. I'm going to fight to think on the gospel. I'm going to fight to, you know, go for a run, go do something um, to, that will help your mind get sharp um, and will help you focus on, on the truth. And that's how over time we train ourselves. We develop new habits that allow us when sinful temptations come We have reflexes that we can build that allow us to say no to the sin and yes to righteousness. And the the kinds of things that tend to get us, our
0: our heart will get, and we may not even know we're doing this at first, but our heart will sometimes get attached to something in a way that we're not willing to really be open-handed before the Lord. Like, Mm -hmm. take my money and do with it what you want. Well, I kind of want to spend my money on this particular thing. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, God probably doesn't want me to spend that much money on that thing right now. I can, just, I can just feel it in the back of my conscience. And if I let it linger there too long, I'll probably feel conviction. So I'm just going to turn that off. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to go through my day. Well, good luck having a quiet time. You, you go before the Lord when your heart is locked in on, on something that's not, not, not right you will be unable to access the presence of the Lord in the normal way because your heart, you your, your heart it. is holding you back. It, until until I'm able to go, okay, what i was going to do with my schedule that is maybe not exactly what God wants me to do, and it's not maybe, but I don't want to give it up, and so that's holding me back. Mm-hmm. If I, I Lord, I, you can have it what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you want me to do. I want to be biblical. And then suddenly there's that open fellowship again. And so what often holds us back is internal heart issues where we're locked in on some small thing, it may be, mm-hmm. seemingly, but it keeps us back from being truly open and transparent before the Lord and truly seeking the Lord's presence. And it's, it's very… I mean, in my experience, there's a lot of dry days reading the Bible if that's going on in my heart, right? and we kind of know when that's happening, but when my heart is saying, I'm really not holding something back, I'm really open before the Lord, I'm not sinless, but I'm really open before the Lord, I'm willing to do what He wants me to do,
2: then it tends to be that that we meet with the Lord more freely in those times. I would say it's also important to kind of trace what leads up to particular temptations, because um, usually we become more vulnerable um, after several steps of taking place. Yep. Like, you know, say it's, um, it 's greed or it 's lust or anger or or covetousness or something usually there's there 's certain types of things that happen to us earlier down earlier down the line that you know somebody said something cross to me and when when they when they say something that about certain aspects of me that I might be you know weak in or you know, feel like insecure in when somebody says something or does something that really attacks that, it leads to me thinking this way, brooding over these kinds of things. And when I get in that type of mindset, you know, I'm more prone to, to think about this, this, and this. And every time I get to here, that's when I give into that temptation. Mm-hmm. So it's like, beware of, of the triggers, if you will, that start the process that leads you down the road to temptation and sin. If, if we can identify you know, those triggers, for lack of a better word, um, then we can stop the process in our heart and mind before it ever even gets us close to engaging in the actual sin that we end up hating and being sorry that we did.
1: I think accountability helps as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have a small group or uh, someone you can be accountable to, uh, you know, call them to pray with you or get together and and read Scripture or something like that. That's why we started Fight Club years ago at Watkinsville, uh, to help, at that time, it was uh, young college students uh, fight sin, was it reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and invest eternally. And this guy, Robert Lewis, that that, uh, did all this, uh, that that was his ministry. He came off of Promise Keepers back in the 90s. He wrote Raising a Modern Day Knight, which Mm -hmm. uh, Josh, Chronic has my book, and, and, and no, no, no. That, that, but that's, but that's, he's got boys. Uh, you know, he, he, that's what uh, fostered uh, Robert Lewis to write this book. He had boys, and he had friends that had boys, and he didn't know how to raise boys, so he got together, and and uh, they did it together, and there was accountability, and and. They, were, they had fun. They went on camping trips and went fishing, but they also opened the Word, so he exposed his, his voice to the Word. So it's done in community, too, and that's why we have a church. So
0: I think we're out of time. Papa, can you close us in prayer?
1: Father, thank you uh, uh, for your Word. Thank you uh, that we're um, challenged in Romans 8 to, uh, to fight sin and uh, to uh, put to death the deeds of the body and to uh, fight, not each other, uh, but to fight our own sin in our own hearts through your spirit. So strengthen us um, uh, in order that we can really address, like Greg mentioned, the, the triggers, the, what, whatever's going on that, that trigger these needs, these temptations. Lord, uh, we can't do this uh, fight alone, but with your strength and your your help, uh, we can kill the deeds of the body. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for our service today and our meal tonight. Amen.
0: Amen. So again, next week we'll start on the critical social justice topic, which I actually think is probably a greater threat to conservative Christians than the LGBTQ movement. So we'll get to that, Lord willing, next Sunday.